Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're moving back to the world of literature. And this is one of the things we're going to see more and more is that a lot of the literature and the philosophy really start to have a lot of overlap, um, especially as you move into literary analysis um, and you start to realize that both literary writers and philosophers are looking at their society from different perspectives and sort of trying to come up with Uh, solutions to some of the problems they see. And as I said, with the 20th century in literature, we're going to be branching out quite a bit. Um, We're going beyond just what most people would consider literature in this season. Uh, We're going to be talking about films. We're going to be talking about um, graphic novels, comic books. We're going to be talking about, you know, literary fiction. We're going to be talking about poetry. We're going to be talking about popular fiction. Um, all of these things are forms of literature. You know, one of the things that often happens is people become inflexible when they think about literature. Uh, even, you know, when writing came along, uh, there were people that felt writing was going to ruin literature because literature had always been oral tradition. Um, but it doesn't, it never ruins it, it just expands it and takes it in new directions. And one of the things that technology in the 20th century does is allows literature to move in different directions. Um, it allows it to take on uh, video, to take on sound. You know, We'll also talk some about radio plays, which were extremely popular. Uh, but the, the film I want to talk about today is Metropolis by Fritz Lang. This is the 1927 uh, German Expressionist film. Uh, this film has been uh, considered one of the important films in not only uh, kind of launching a lot of uh, different types of uh, film like science fiction. Yes, there were earlier science fiction films that were generally pretty short, but this was a very uh, long movie in comparison. This is still a long movie compared to a lot of them today. Uh, the original was close to three hours long. Uh, They had to actually cut out about a third of it for uh, the purpose of putting it on in the the movie houses. Movie houses didn't want a movie that was three hours long. So you actually had a lot of it that was pretty important get cut out. And there was a fire where where these uh, film reels were stored that were cut out, and they were destroyed. And up until, you know, the 2000s, people thought, that was just gone forever. And then they ended up finding some of the lost footage in a museum, a film museum in Argentina. So they were able to kind of piece some of it back together. Um, I don't want to go too much into the externalities of the film. I want to talk more about the film and uh, sort of the ideas in the film. Now, one of the things that film does is it brings literature to another level. It brings it to the level where you can see it and hear it. You don't just have to imagine it. And for some people, they feel that diminishes the imagination. Um, But in other ways, it also brings it to a wider audience who wouldn't necessarily have been engaged in longer books, um, but would have gotten into it. And with literature, whether it's, you know, oral literature, written literature, videoed literature, uh, songs, there are always a lot of social ideas that are underneath. You know, even the things we think of as very, uh, I guess you'd call them lighthearted and not 
too in-depth, are still conveying a lot of meaning. They're still conveying a lot of what people take to be their image. You know, think about how much the media, the popular media today, shapes the way people not only view themselves and each other, but view what it's what it means to be successful, uh, what it means to be uh, a good person, what it means to be a bad person. You know, all of these things get shaped through literature. And the more the literature is all around you, the more uh, effect they're going to have on you. And this is one of the things about, you know, the 21st century is we've come to a point where, you know, electronic media is everywhere. We're constantly bombarded with videos and stories and images and, um, you know, blogs. So literature has kind of saturated everything about us. Uh, this is good and bad. It's good in that it can open a lot of doors we may not have necessarily been exposed to before, but it can be bad in that it, you can also become oversaturated to where you can't absorb anything, where you just let everything bounce off passively, or you kind of move into what people have called an echo chamber, where you only go towards a certain uh, certain literatures that convey the ideas you already like, convey the ideas you already want to hear. So it's a very complex uh, interaction with literature and society. It always has been. Uh, in Fritz Lang's movie, um, Metropolis, it's definitely giving you a lot of the ideas and a lot of the themes that were very important at the time. Now you have a society that's set up almost literally like a pyramid um, because you have the people at the top who are a small number and then as you go farther and farther down you get the workers until the workers the the bottom level workers are actually working under the city and living under the city so you do have this kind of pyramid shaped hierarchy that is also visually represented um, a lot of what's going on in 1927, if you think about history, the Russian Revolution that happened about 10 years earlier, this is after the French Revolution, this is during the age of industrialization, and so you start to have these conflicts between the capitalists, the communists, the socialists, um, and, and lots of different groups. And a lot of these tensions are uh, there in the film. Um, and in the way people are depicted. You know, when you see the bottom level of society in the opening scenes, you see a lot of images of machinery kind of reinforcing the idea of, you know, people becoming just a cog in the wheel. Uh, this is a very deliberate. Uh, expressionism is trying to convey a lot of meaning through images. And in silent films, you don't have a lot of dialogue to convey what you're trying to convey. So you have a few panels here and there with some words on it. But most of what is conveyed has to be conveyed through imagery. It has to be conveyed through facial expression, body language. This is why when you watch a lot of the silent films, you know, for the modern viewer, they seem almost over dramatic to the point of being silly. But you got to remember, these were things that were used to express a lot of meaning, to express depth. When you don't have, you know, dialogue going on, you, the only way you can express it is to show it. Now, silent films weren't completely silent because they generally had a movie, or I should say a, a soundtrack that would be played along with them of music. Uh, for a lot of them, 
it would be played in an orchestra pit at the front of the theater. For some of them that came later on, it would it would actually start to be embedded on the film. This is when you start to get towards the next generation of films uh, that people back then called the talkies. Um, but Fritz Lang's Metropolis, uh, as I said, you, it starts out showing the workers, and they're basically marching, you know, it's it's shift change, and you have a group of workers marching slowly in unison out from the plant and a group of workers marching slowly in unison into the plant and it's a lot like if you think about Elliot's the wasteland where you see the you know image that Elliot gave of you know everybody just kind of being on autopilot and be being almost mechanized you can't tell the workers apart they're all wearing the same clothes they're all walking and standing the same way they're actually almost marching in step. So this kind of is conveying the sense of dehumanization. And this, again, is something that, you know, the, the romantics, the realists, the rationalists, the Victorians, all were kind of trying to get across with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, that there's a great deal of dehumanization that goes on for the workers. Now, the people at the top, except for the people that are actually running everything, uh, they're living a life of pleasure and ease. And the main character of this is Frieder. And his father is basically the one that runs Metropolis. But Frieder lives this life of paradise. He's actually running around with garden in gardens with, you know, peacocks and other birds flying around. And you have uh, women that are actually sort of brought in to be his playmates and we'll talk about this because I want to talk about some feminist uh, criticism of this movie too so we'll talk about that a little bit after a while um, but you know you get this definite division you know the upper classes are more human they're seen as having a freer and more enjoyable life where for the lower class they're basically you know, living in misery, living in poverty. And this is one of the criticisms that is made against capitalism by Marx and by other people is that it dehumanizes a large part of the population. And in the film, um, as Frieder's playing in his, you know, playpen in the, at the top of the world, uh, a woman comes in named Maria and she brings with her the children of the workers and she kind of points out the, the people in the fancy clothes and says, these are your brothers. And, and Frieder's kind of shocked because he had been isolated from this. You know, he had never actually seen workers because they were, you know, a mile below his feet in the, in the underground city. And so he's kind of stunned that, you know, wait, these are my brothers. How come I don't know these people? How come I don't know anything about these people? And so he goes down into the... Uh, under the city to kind of get a sense of who are these people? You know, how do they live? You know, why do I have all of these brothers that I don't know who they are? Uh, and why do they seem so different? And one of the first things he witnesses is an industrial accident. One of the workers becomes so tired that he basically collapses and the machinery explodes. And you have you know, people flying on wires being thrown off the machinery, you have smoke, and Frieder kind of goes into this um, hallucination where the machine that he was looking at that they were running 
sort of transforms into a uh, primitive altar for sacrifice. Uh, and, you know, it even gives the word Moloch. Moloch was a, uh, a deity that people worship by sacrificing their children to. And so the workers you see in his vision are marching up into the mouth of, of Moloch basically to be consumed. And, you know, obviously this is a very direct representation of the fact that this system is just chewing these people up and spitting them out. And Frieder is unable to deal with this. He tries to talk to his father about it uh, when he goes back up. And his father's main concern is, you know, questioning his, uh, his people below him is, you know, why was he allowed to go down there? Why did you let him see this stuff? Uh, because he wanted to keep his son kind of insulated from these kinds of things. And the father is very much, you know, when I viewed the film, I pictured him being probably patterned after Henry Ford or someone like Ford, someone who is, you know, all business and only has their mind on, you know, the numbers and keeping the machinery going. Uh, and, and you get this sense of he's all calculation. Uh, Frieder is all emotion. And the people on the, and the workers, they're all, you know, uh, physical labor and uh, raw passions. You get a little bit more of uh, Maria coming into the, and, and she plays a major role in this. Maria is one of the daughters of the workers, and she functions very obviously as a Christ-type figure. Remember when we talked about the Sound and the Fury? There were a couple of Christ figures in the Sound and the Fury. Maria very much functions as, as this. You know, she's the one that's trying to bring the whole thing to salvation. She's even pictured in a couple of scenes, you know, with her arms spread out, almost, you know, as if she's sort of uh, similar to the pictures you've seen of Jesus kind of rising off the cross um, and, you know, kind of bringing salvation. So Maria is kind of seen as this character bringing salvation. Well, Frieder and his father have both figured out that the workers are plotting something. And what the workers are plotting is basically a revolution. You know, they're, they're drawing up plans, they're meeting in secret, and they're going to try to overthrow the system and, and get out of being under the city. And then you move into sort of a side plot that, that ties it together more. Um, you int you're introduced to the mad scientist. Um, and this uh, mad scientist is another image that was, you know, popular with the romantics. Think about, you know, Victor Frankenstein and, and some of the other mad scientists from that era. Kind of the idea that science is going to go crazy and replace us. And the mad scientist creates a robot, basically uh, uses um, Frieder's dad as the, um, as the, his wife is sort of the template of that, which actually turns out to be, she looks just like Maria. Uh, so the robot ends up coming to life and they, and, and they replace the real Maria with the robot. And she is there to stir up the passions of the workers, to, to sort of whip them up into a violent frenzy. One of the things that 
was thought that it would happen is they would get into a frenzy, uh, it would be put down, and then people would go back to work. Well, what happens is she works them into such a frenzy that they basically start destroying the machinery and march up to kind of, you know, take over. And as they're destroying the machinery, they've kind of left their children at home under the city, and the city starts to flood. And so it's left to the real Maria and Frieder to save all of the children from the flood. Uh, once they sort of break in and they're with, uh, you know, they're, they're at the top, uh, they find out that uh, what they've done has destroyed everything, that's destroyed their children. Now, a lot of what this is going on so far is kind of talking about the tension between capitalism and communism. Um, the communists were seen as kind of uh, uneducated, uh, just raw anger and raw emotion um, that was building up so much pressure that it was going to eventually destroy everything. You know, this is partially built off the Russian Revolution, the way it was seen from Europe, and partially built from what was seen in the French Revolution, where you have the lower classes kind of whipped into a frenzy, and they take over everything, and they don't really know how to run things, so everything crashes down in catastrophe. And one of the things that Frieder is supposed to symbolize is the connection between these two. He's supposed to be the heart that connects, you know, the calculating thinking of the capitalist with the hands of the worker. And so the message may come across as seeming cheesy, but a lot of the overall message of the film is, you know, communism on its own, capitalism on its own, are very inhuman and destructive. And what we need is uh, empathy. We need, we need emotion to moderate between the two so we can kind of have the best of both worlds. Um, and, and this is sort of, from a Marxist perspective, the theme of the movie. Now, you also have, a, from a feminist perspective, a lot going on with Maria. Because Maria sort of gets split into two people. Uh, there's the real Maria, who's all good and almost like a Mary or Christ-like figure. And even her name, Maria, is a version of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and she represents the woman who is pure and all good and all loving and uh, tries to keep everything on track. Now, if you've listened to some of the earlier lectures you probably remember my discussion of Victorian literature where I talked about the two types of women in Victorian literature. And one of them was the angel of the house. Well, Maria is very much the angel of the house. She's not a real person. She's, she's perfect. She's, she's an embodiment of perfect values, which means she's reduced to a type. Now, the evil Maria, the flip side of her, is a representation of the Jezebel character. She's only there to tempt everybody into destruction and to kind of um, bring the whole thing crashing down. You know, she's born out of the mind of the mad scientist. His lust for power, his lust for knowledge has, you know, uh, destroyed all of the human bonds. And so you have Maria, one person, you know, but representing two different caricatures, two different female types. You don't have an actual representation of a full woman. 
you know, somebody with some good qualities, some bad qualities, someone that's human, someone that makes mistakes. You have two types of women, the one looking to restore order and make things better, and the one looking to destroy everything. And depending on which one the people choose to follow, that's what they're going to end up with, either destruction or redemption. Now, the other women, there aren't very many in the movie. Uh, the other women are the ones that are kind of brought to be uh, the um, the playmates for the young Frieder. Uh, they're seen as toys. And this is another vision of women that was put out there. It's sort of the idea of women are like dolls. Um, they're they're playthings to amuse men. Uh, their only function is to, you know, keep the man happy, keep the man amused. And this is, for most modern people, something we see as very repulsive. But if you look back even up through the 50s and, and into the beginning of the 60s, you kind of have women portrayed that way. And if you look at the, you know, uh, magazines that were directed towards women and the advice that they gave women... You know, all of it was about how to be a perfect wife and how not to bother your husband with your little problems because, you know, he's a man working in the real world and he has real problems. So you should never complain. You should never look sad. You should never get angry. You should always have your your hair perfect, your makeup perfect, his dinner ready, you know, bring his uh, slippers and his pipe. Uh, you know, so th this is a lot of the... All of the female characters you get are a lot of the stereotypes of women from that time period. The way they're portrayed in film and the way they're portrayed in really mass society. Now if you look, you know, a lot of this uh, push for women to be like this um, is, is a lot a pushback against uh, the women's movements that have been going on since the 1800s. You know, the suffragettes looking for the right to vote. Um, so a lot of these images are almost what you would call uh, a counter-propaganda. And, and you have to realize that when you're dealing with any type of work, um, whether it intends to, to, to convey a message like pro a propaganda message or not, it still will just because of the natural biases chosen by the person who writes it, um, by, the, by the society that consumes it. You know, you can get a lot of understanding of why people think the way they do by looking at their popular media, um, because this is always sort of an attempt to shape people's views. And as I said, if you look at, you know, society today, look at how much of people's views are shaped by movies, television shows, advertising, you know, these things have a real impact. And so part of what, you know, you start to get into, especially in 20th century literary analysis, is you start to get a look at these images. And it doesn't mean you can't still enjoy literature and films far from that. They're still very enjoyable. But what it does is it makes you conscious of the messages that are being sent. And once you're conscious of the messages being sent, then you can make the decision, okay, yeah, I believe that, and I think I should go along with that, or, oh, no, that's pretty horrible, and maybe we should try and change things. you know. But you can't make 
decisions if you don't understand there are decisions in front of you. This is part of what analysis is about. You know, you don't just passively absorb everything that you walk, you know, come in contact with. Uh, Unfortunately, most people do, and that's why most people end up living lives that make them extremely unhappy because they're living by what they've internalized as what they should be rather than who they really are Um, because they've never been critical about the images that have been put in front of them. So as I said, this doesn't mean you can't enjoy film, you can't enjoy books. I enjoy films, I enjoy books. Um, But I'm also aware of them on another level. You know, what is this trying to say? And you also have to think about how things are portrayed. Because sometimes the author is portraying these things and saying, see how it is, hooray for us. This This is wonderful, this is the way it should be. And sometimes the author is portraying things and saying, this is how it is. And while this is pretty messed up when you really look at it. And, you know, this is what people who create literature, people who create films are actually looking for. They want an audience that engages with what they do, not just watches it or reads it and then, you know, passively absorb some of it and moves on to the next thing, because that's not real engagement with the work of literature. You know, literature, like anything else, becomes much more intricate, much more um, enjoyable the more levels of it you can see, the more angles you can take on it, you know, because it gives you things to think about. It gives you things to compare to your own life. It gives you things to discuss with other people, you know, and and good literature has always been, and even bad literature, has always been something that is social. It is deliberately made um, to be put out into the public, to bring new ideas into the public, to bring new ways of seeing things into the public. This is why literature by authoritarian regimes is very highly censored, because they want to be careful what ideas their people are exposed to, and books that might teach them the wrong ideas, or movies that might teach them the wrong ideas, are immediately censored. Um, Fritz Lang himself ran into this. He's a German filmmaker in the 20s and up to early 30s and the last film he made in Germany uh, was in 33 and it had some almost direct shots at Adolf Hitler's character Uh, even though the character was not you know made to look like him or necessarily a uh, national leader some of the traits of the character were mimicking the traits of Hitler. And so one of the first things that uh, Goebbels did, his, his uh, propaganda minister, was to ban the film. Uh, he basically told uh, Fritz Lang that he could, um, he could make, he could be in charge of the movie theaters uh, or the movie productions, uh, but he would be kept on a tight leash. Uh, Lang was actually half Jewish. His mother had been Jewish and converted to Catholicism. Uh, And uh, this kind of made Fritz Lang pretty nervous, and rightly so, and he ends up leaving Germany for the United States and staying in the United States and becoming a citizen. Uh, And then his movie career picks up in the United States. Um, And after the Nuremberg Laws came out, he realized he made the right decision because even though his mother had converted, 
it didn't matter up to your if you had one grandparent on either side who was Jewish even if they converted and became Christian and their children were Christian and you were Christian uh, you were still considered a Jew and sent to the camps so luckily for him he was suspicious enough of what was going on to get out of there now his wife who wrote most of the screenplay for it kind of went the opposite direction she became um, more of a supporter of the Nazi party and the two of them split okay uh, I'm going to break off uh, the episode for there. Uh, these episodes, if you notice, this season are getting longer. They're generally averaging around 30 minutes or more. Uh, and I'm going to be doing these longer episodes like this. Because one of the things that happens is as you, you know, get through the first season and do mostly short episodes, you become more accustomed to getting into things more in depth. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.